New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, storyteller and mythologist Dr. Martin Shaw, shares this sage advice. You are only here for a short time. God has blessed you, so rise up. Find out what you love. Speak it. Be it. Steward it. Nothing else will quite fill your soul or make such deep purchase in your heart. It will make you kind. It's not the only way, but it has claimed me, and I will put my shoulder to its service while I am here. In a rush to solve all the problems of the world, there are those who are advising us of the need to be telling a new story. Shaw challenges us by suggesting the stories we need turned up right on time about 5,000 years ago. Today, we'll climb the attic steps and kneel before the old trunk, gently lifting the lid and allowing these ancient tales to rush out and pierce our hearts and souls with their wisdom. Our guide in this quest is Martin Shaw. Dr. Martin Shaw is a storyteller and mythologist. He's a wilderness rites of passage guide and is internationally regarded as one of the most exciting proponents of mythic imagination. He tells prophetic stories that speak deeply to the challenges we face today in the world and in our personal lives. He has devised and led the oral tradition course at Stanford University and is a visiting fellow at Schumacher College and the director of West Country School of Myth, a learning community in Dartmoor in the far west of the United Kingdom. He's the author of many books, including A Branch from the Lightning Tree, Snowy Tower, Scatterlings, and The Night Wages. Join us for the next hour as we take a deep dive into our mythic imagination with our guest, Dr. Martin Shaw. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Martin, welcome. Thank you very much, Justine. I'm delighted to be here. It's a delight to have you. Thank you for coming. And I'd like to begin, first of all, talking about myths, fairy tales, folk tales. You 
are immersed in them, and why are they significant to us right now in this time? I would say they are the way our ancestors tried to tell the truth. And my introduction to that world came in the house that I grew up in. Uh, so I grew up in the early 70s in a house that seemingly lacked a lot of things. It didn't have a phone, it didn't have a television, didn't have a car. But we had a lot of books, and I had a mum and a dad, who I still have, uh, who cherished language as a form of wealth. And story itself was one of the highest expressions of that wealth. And so I learned to think in images from the beginning. I think in images. And I remember as a kid, as a little boy, I realized that within the space of a day, uh, it was quite hard for me to maintain the shape of a little boy all the time. Sometimes I would feel that I was about to become a bear or a salmon or a hawk. In other words, I was a little kind of shape leaper, shape shifter. And even at that age, stories would talk about that part of the human psyche, that we were more porous than our little schools would have us believe. And it just made immediate, profound sense to me. When I heard a story, um, I would feel like I'd been fed, like some essential nutrition had moved into me. So stories, fairy tales, folk tales, legends, arriving from the oral tradition, I think they are more than human beings sitting in their neurosis, wondering about the world. I think there's the possibility that some of these stories actually have the earth speaking through them. So in other words, there's more than just human intelligence at play. Uh, and as I got older, that became really captivating to me. So if someone was to say, why do we need those stories now? We only have to look for a second at, you know, what's happening with our climate to realize it's one thing to talk about climate change. It's one thing to talk about the earth. But could it be that secreted in these ancient stories, the earth is talking back to us? In that case, what stories, these are ancient stories, and we're talking about things that are coming to us seemingly from a long time ago. Mm. But you're saying that it has reference to where we are right now. Yeah, uh, from the very basic idea that most stories begin with a hopeless cause. Ah. Goethe would say, you know, until there's some boldness in you, invisible forces in this universe will not rise to meet you. So actually, when I see this kind of moribund timeline predicted for us, I think, oh, it's perfect. It's time for the mythic imagination. Stories allow little pinpricks of the miraculous into them. And whilst I have a clear and sober sense of how late the hour is for us ecologically, um, I won't close the door to that miraculous possibility just yet. Because even in my own few years on this planet, again and again and again, I've witnessed the impossible manifest. And I don't think, and I'm kind of echoing Wendelberry here, 
I don't think that a uh, a big question could be solved by a big answer. I don't really believe it. Uh, I think myth deals in specificity. A lot of myth is very localized. So we're very keen these days on where did our bread come from? Where did our lamb come from? Where did our beer come from? Where did your story come from? Wouldn't it be an amazing thing? Uh, and I'm mentioning some of my great heroes today to do what Gary Snyder always advised, which is be famous for five miles. Draw a little chalk circle around where you live and dig in. And that doesn't have to be a rural situation. That could, you know, Blake found a lot of what he needed in London. You know, Blake's walking along and uh, you and I see a thistle. Blake sees a little glowing gray man waving at you. It's how I think, I think myth right now could move us from seeing the ecological predicament into beholding the ecological predicament. Now, how do you behold a predicament? Um, you stop telling it what it is. You stop telling 2019. You stop telling the times that we're in what they are. And you just bear witness to the unfolding. That doesn't mean passivity. It means manners, actually. It means behaving in a certain way. If myths have to repeat a more than human intelligence at play, um, and indigenous stories have a lot to offer in this regard, as well as the sort of uh, the propelling heroic narrative of the West. There are many other rhythms to stories that we need to know about, and we could talk about that in a while, maybe. Campbell used to say about myth that we all gag on true doctrine. Old myths generally have something in, in them that do not fit the polemics of our times or our personal lives. And that is the bit we need to pay attention to. The problem with the idea that you can just create a myth out of the ether is it's very unlikely that it's going to have any ancestral roughage in it. So that, that has to do with, oh, we need to create a new story, that conversation yeah. that's happening. Oh, let's, we've got to create a new story or yeah. a better story. Yes. I mean, on, the, on, a, on an immediate level, uh, speaking as a feminist, I absolutely think we need a new story when it comes to how men and women have treat each other. So I get it. But when you're talking about something as profound, not just as a story, but a myth itself, which is, which is to do with the passage of time and space, uh, Tolkien didn't write a myth with Lord of the Rings. Jeanette Winterson did, doesn't write myth. J.K. Rowling doesn't write myth. What they do write is incredible, beautiful, sophisticated, mythic stories. The mythic and a myth are not quite the same thing. Myths, in the way I understand them, in certainly the oral tradition of storytelling understands it, they don't have a distinct author because they could have come from a, a weather pattern. They could have come from a crow. They could have come from that secretive little bend in the river where the salmon used to gather. Uh, we would not be so naive to claim authorship of the story. We're just passing it on. Well, that just reminds me, I, I sing in a gospel choir, and the songs we refer to mostly are those that are unauthored. Mm. 
unsigned. These mm. the, those that came over from uh, and sung by dark people who came against their will that worked under the sun for many hours. And those don't have an author. And those feel so authentic. They feel something deeply moving, uh, the struggle and the, the, the need for freedom is all there. And that's what you're saying about these ancient myths. There's something there that's deeper. Yes, they're not slick. Uh-huh. Uh, they're, they're, they're not are, Disney. Uh. They're not, they don't encourage multitasking. Uh, they need real attention. They need focus. The word that I tend to use is they need fidelity. So if you really want myth in your life, you have to show up for the myth as well as the myth showing up for you, which might mean that you say, you know what, for this winter, all I'm going to do is uh, really, really study. Uh, It could be the Iliad. It could be a Siberian folktale. But I'm going to turn up to this story so many times I make it blush. In the Irish tradition, uh, if you go to the other world, if you go to the land of the Tuatha de Danann, the people of art and light, if you go to the fairy, there's a surprise waiting for you. And it's this, their storytellers tell the fairy stories about us. We, of the, we are the dream of the other world to them. When they gather by the fire, It's our stories they hear. So we need to live lives interesting enough to beguile the fairies. Ah, (laughs) I want to to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw. He's the author of The Night Wages and many other books. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw. He's a mythologist. He's a speaker of myths and gatherer of myths, and he communicates and helps us to unpack them, so to speak. He's also the author of The Night Wages and other things. If you want to know more about his work, I'm going to give you a couple of websites. First, his website, drmartinshaw.com, doctor, just uh, the abbreviation dr martinshaw.com. Or if you want to really access his books, the many books, Noe Tower, um, The Branch from the Lightning Tree, and other books, uh, you can go to, it's called systemistica.com, C-I-S-T-A, 
M-Y-S-T-I-C-A, SistaMystica.com. Or you can get to both of those through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. So, Martin, uh, you've you've started us off, and there's so much I want I want to talk about that you've given these clues as we go along. But one of the things that I'd like to talk about, and I know that you have given some thought to this, and it has to do with what I would call vertical intelligence and horizontal intelligence. Mm. And I think this has something to do with the way we understand myths or or have a relationship with myths. So can you say something about those two kinds of intelligence? Yeah, yeah certainly. And this is these are old ideas. I'm just uh, just moving them on into the world a bit. Uh, yes, uh, you could say that a vertical intelligence is a moment where you as a simple human being are overtly reaching out to the divine world. Uh, when you are entirely engaged in the horizontal, which absolutely has its merit, it tends to be more practical concerns. Now, let's be clear. Of course, there's a hundred thousand ways those two worlds interact all the time. And a point that I would want to make is when I'm referring to uh, attention to the divine world, I'm not necessarily referring to something the other side of Pluto. I'm not referring necessarily to what we might conceive of as heaven. Uh, it could be um, a little rowan tree at the bottom of your garden. It could be the, the little birds that gather, the swifts that gather at the bird feed. Uh, it could be a mountain. It can be secreted amongst us all the time. It's really what, to talk about him again, uh, Blake would call pinpricks of the eternal. Uh, often if you notice, and I'd say this to all the listeners actually, if you notice that you are regularly falling into depression during your day, the mythological uh, Aikido move to make is to question how often a day do I get pinpricks of eternity entering it? How am I so hooked up in the time bound I can't access the timeless? Stories are a crossroads between the timeless and the time bound. So they carry these essential eternal truths that we all recognize. But at the same time, you and I live in bodies. And over time, those bodies uh, go their own perfect route. And... <laughs> <laughs> sad know, to say, yes. Sad to say, and and it's also part of, um, you know, the delicious sorrows of the world that that happens. But if you are around stories regularly, if you're around storytelling, even if you read out loud, you will find uh, tremendous nourishment in it. Uh, and it's as, Ca as Captain Beefheart used to say, stories are a mood propellant. I love that. A mood <laughs> propeller. And so you can shift from one place to the other. Uh, my old mentor, Robert Bly, would call this moving from the first castle to the second castle. Uh, so another way of thinking about vertical and horizontal is actually, and all the writers out there, I think, will relate to this. I call it, you know, day and night intelligence. When I'm writing a book like The Night Wages, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the really succulent bits of it come from very late at night. I realized years ago that I write in an entirely different fashion 
after 11 p.m. than I do in the, in the early in the morning. I even figured out that in the cottage that I write the books in, I have different forms of thought in different parts of the cottage. So I have several desks and the books and even the sentences you read in my books are usually a, a braided knot of day and night intelligence. And if I want to crank up my ideas and my sense of the conceptual, I go to a particular part of the house. If I really want to invoke the editor in me, I will work early in the morning, drink good coffee, and another desk brings out the editor. So in other words, the house itself, uh, Gaston Bachelard talks a lot about this, is uh, an organic, soulful, living, interruptive presence. So, so in that sense, the horizontal, the mundane, and the vertical, the divine, or whatever word you want to call for it, are in this crossroads. And the god of the storytellers is called Hermes. And where do you go to worship Hermes? You go to the crossroads. I love it. I love it. Uh, which takes us a little bit to the premise of this most recent book, yes. The Night Wages. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the premise of this book and the idea of it and mm. what stimulated you to even sit down and write it. Well, what stimulated me to write it was, uh, was just a series of very ordinary catastrophes that most people in midlife experience. Um, but all of us, you know, the gods will curate the particular, the particular derailment that we need, maybe. I don't want to say that all suffering is good, I don't want to kind of wink at the the listener and, and imply that for a second. There are things out there that we're never going to get over. But as I hit my mid-40s, I went through a period of proper, profound sorrow, real sorrow. And now that's one thing to cope with. But if you are a parent, as I am, and you've got a child that you're raising in the middle of this unutterable loss... Um, you really start to call on whatever your nutrition is to get you through this. How do you and the child stay in the story when the story seems to be um, disintegrating in your very hands? So the book began actually when I wrote a letter uh, to my, my kid, my daughter. And in it, I just started to write about the things I utterly stood for something that she may be able to look at when she was older. This is what your dad loved. This is what he defended. This is what he cared about. This is what he lost. This is what he gained. And I started to realize that this might be a book that would be useful or a thing, actually. I didn't think of it as a book at the time. This could be something that's useful for other folks as well. Uh, I would have loved it uh, if one of my... Um, literary heroes at a certain point, and actually one of them, uh, one of them did do it. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called *A Grief Observed*, and that was a a very useful book for me when I was going through this period. Um, so it's a love letter to the thing that I love most in the world, which is my daughter. So, and I I know that you say in the book uh, you give a phrase. I don't know if she actually said this, but she said. 
I just imagine you in your depression, your mm. grief, whatever yeah. you're going yep. through, and we all do this, that we get so walled off in our own deep sorrow, and yet there's this kid out here, yeah. and and they're wondering, am I still in your story? Yeah, and she true. asks the question, am I still in your story? And then what I gathered from this particular book is that you get to a deep, deep sense of authenticity, that you can't you can't lie about it. You can't just smooth it over and say, "Oh, I'm feeling fine." Oh, I buck up and you put on the smile. But you you take us deep, deep into what it means to be human and yet still survive. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, I, that, that I think it was that. There's a there's a, a phrase in the book that I come back to, and it's this: "Our heartbreak is not our kid's business." The kid is not your shrink. It is not your therapist. Don't do that. Cut that out. Uh, and so I realized quick, I didn't need to be Superman to my child. I, but I needed to be able to function in the world. I needed to be able to speak of it with a degree of elegance, a degree of truth, uh, and as little malice as possible. Uh, and so that was what I, I did. Um, I statements are one thing, you know, an I statement. But when you bring in a myth, the myth or the fairy tale of the folk tale takes the tributary of your experience to the great river that is the old mythic stories. And so these stories supported me through um, this period of time. Uh, and they did more than that. They deepened me. Um, an image in one of, uh, it's actually a, it's a thing I talk about in the book called Becoming Crocodile, where there uh, is a, an African village where at a certain point, I think this was amongst the men, I don't know if they did it to the women as well, it's kind of brutal. You would be taken out into the bush, and for a period of time, your back would be beaten with sticks so severely that the skin itself, when it healed, was ridged like a crocodile. When you would come back to the village, if people had really deep questions about the business of suffering, the business of living, the business of trying to become a human being, you would go to ask those questions to someone that everybody knew had become crocodile. So you see, we're back to the shape-shifting of me as a little kid. When I thought, oh, well, I'm of kind of a boy, but I'm also kind of a bear and I'm also kind of a salmon and I'm a little bit of a fox. As you get older, we do change shape. And the night wages is an acknowledgement, I suppose, to myself that I have changed shape. I am fundamentally a different man to who I was half a decade ago. I am profoundly changed. In Greek myth, Think of the Odyssey. Uh, the old Greek word that describes the Odyssey is nostos. Nostos is the longing for home. Do you remember Odysseus is trying to get back to Ithaca, this rather nondescript island filled with goats and rocky crags. But it is his yearning to get home that propels him through the story and the winding route 
it takes from uh, leaving uh, Troy. And Nostos, I think, is culturally getting us into a lot of trouble at the moment. I think Nostos is behind Brexit. I think Nostos, in a rather warped way, is to do with some of the political things that are happening in America at the moment as well. We all, we all remember, we all have an image of being in the garden. We have an image of being in the garden. And you can manipulate that in people. You can colonize people's imagination uh, when you evoke Nostos. Oh, we've got to go deeper with all of that in just one moment. Uh, thank you so much. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw, and he's the author of The Night Wages. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw, and he is the author of many books, including The Night Wages, also A Branch from the Lightning Tree, Snowy Tower, other books. And we're talking about going home. Mm. And and then you really <laughs> said something very provocative. You said that yeah. this is also, there's a danger in this right now. How How are we skewing that in a way that that isn't serving the higher good or serving the earth or serving life itself? Well, uh, as I was saying, in, in Greek myth, the word for this yearning is nostos, the homeward journey. Uh, in the Welsh, some of them call it haraeth, which again is, is slightly more intangible, but it's really a feeling of longing and the desire to sate that longing. Now, longing is an interesting thing because uh, you probably remember there's some lines from Rumi uh, via my dear pal Coleman, uh, who says something along the lines of the feeling of longing in your heart is God speaking back to you. It is the return journey. So longing itself is already a divine accomplishment. God is already nurturing you and talking to you if you have the, uh, the ears to hear it. I just remember for myself when someone confronted me with the idea of longing as that being a really powerful place to be. And I can remember rejecting that entirely because it was so, to be in longing is to never have resolve then. So, yeah, but you don't, know. Don't, don't you think that what makes a grown-up is living with incompleteness? It's not satiated desire. No culture worth its salt accomplishes itself by what it got. It's what, what it learned not to live with for the sake of other people. That's when I see a mature person, <laughs> when I see a real human being, it's actually that. Uh, there's a lovely uh, Anglo-Saxon phrase, entering the bone house. And part of getting older, part of this rather mystical proposition that eventually maybe towards the end of our life we could become a human being uh, is that you're going to have to dwell in certain appropriate tensions 
you're going to have to live with complexity. As you get older, you're going to have to learn to live with less in a certain way. And to be able to do that, to be able to try and operate and cut out the lies is actually quite a thing for a younger person to witness. So if we're really interested in what is coming after us, if we're really invested in the ones that are to come, one of the things that we can do is pay attention to the crooked little walk of our own life and give it language. Because in myth, until you say something, it's just not true. Until you speak it, until you give it language. Whenever you meet a wise old woman from the forest, they say, what is the condition of your heart right now? You say, well, it's this, 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 and this, but I don't speak of it. And the way the story will always begin, this is in the fairy tale tradition, really, is that you have to find a way to give voice to your longing or give voice to your desire or give voice to your sorrow. Whatever it is, it needs breath on it. It needs breath. Uh, some of you will know the story of Psyche and Eros. And Psyche has to go down to the underworld and she has to hold um, she has to hold a gold coin between her teeth to meet the, to pay the ferryman. And I've spent years telling that story and speculating on it. And it's something to do for me. My experience of that image is her breath is on the coin. In other words, it's her life. The woman lived. She had to hold it in her teeth. In her that's where you're talking about you live with a myth. You keep living with it, it and living keep with it. And up. at different times in our life, different parts of it are going to speak to us in different ways. Is That's that what exactly you're saying? That's exactly right. I, I am not a proponent uh, of this idea of, you know, live your myth. I think myths, plural, live us. Uh, and they arrive often two or three myths within the course of a day, let alone a decade. And... The real complexity is that is myths want different things from us. But an, an old way of looking at a myth would be if you don't show that fidelity to it, you don't, it means you're not negotiating with the myth. The myth lives itself through you and can possess you. So there is a prudence in absorbing and telling stories because you feed the story. If all, if, but if you are perennially in devouring mode, gimme, 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 the stories tend to charge through us rather than negotiate with us. Okay. I, ha I have a recurring dream, and this dream is I'm on a certain beach, and the waves are coming in, and suddenly the beach is emptied of all water, mm. and suddenly I see the bottom of this little inlet with all the it, it actually is quite frightening and quite awful it's not beautiful at all it's got it's got crap in it it's got rocks in it it's got all sorts of stuff and people have thrown garbage in it and so i see all of this then i read your book and here is this woman who is enticed by these two fellows and she follows them, and they turn out to be polar bears. Mm. And suddenly in this myth that you're relating, 
she's walking on the bottom of the sea. Yeah. And she's becoming bone. Her mm. flesh is falling away. It just Martin, I, I don't it somehow it just reminded me of this recurring dream and now this is what you're talking about. Maybe when a myth starts reading you or starts living you because it is help me out here yeah you're perfect you're right on track myths generally ask more of us than we want to give yeah i don't want to go there (laughs) to that terrible place so in other words so you've got to negotiate with it you've got to go okay what do you want from me because if i'm not conscious you're just going to take it uh i don't want to I don't want to be overly superstitious about this. I'm not trying to create kind of pandemonium in our listenership, but stories uh, stories are demanding a kind of uh, psychic and emotional sophistication from us. Something I've been wondering recently and I've been talking about is this. Have we, are we so culturally dulled to the mythic now that we're receiving fake news from our own psyche. That even our still small <laughs> voice is now malfunctioning. Uh-oh. Uh, I have stories which would suggest this. Uh, I don't think that that is a terminal diagnosis. I think that there's something to be done. And the thing that I do, and, and in a way that's all I can speak of is my own practice and approach to this, uh, is to go back to these old tales and let them work on me. I articulate them. I, t- I tell them. There's something about the orality of storytelling. Again, back to Rumi. Learn a poem by heart because it'll mm. die of cold on the page. Learn a story by heart. Learn, to use a, a word you just used, learn the bones of the thing. It doesn't need to be a recital. It needs to be a telling. Uh, because then the story itself, as a living being, you know, I'm an animist, The story is alive. And so the story is then getting fed by your telling of the story. And as an animist, it's like everything is alive. Is that what? Yeah, there are, are, and there's many different ways of being alive. There's different, many different ways of expression. This is something that I learned through all these years doing Wilderness Rites of Passage. But um, if you start telling the thing, or writing the thing, or drawing the thing, or dancing the thing, or communicating it in some fashion, it doesn't need to show up in your life as fate. Ah, there's something that you said earlier that (laughs) caught me. Uh, And I'm glad to hear that that if you live it, that maybe you you don't have to go down that road. But you you use the word... um, Tributary, mm. and and it just reminds me. And you talked about tributary, then taking you to the bigger river of whatever it is that you're looking for. But it's a kind of attention we have to give to finding those tributaries. I call it like it's not looking directly at it. It's like it grabs us out of the corner of our eye. It's not a direct focus, would you? Yes, I think that's brilliant. Uh, it reminds me of a character, actually, who in mythology we've really got wrong, which is Medusa. Uh, Medusa has had a, an inaccurate rap. She's a, a very interesting and 
potent being or a force field even. But one of the things that you do get in Greek myth is if you're encountering an energy like hers, the way to do it, to not be annihilated, is to gaze not on her but on her reflection through a shield. Now, what I see, I, uh, I meet thousands of young people every year who are involved in activism, the state of our times, you know, God bless them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but the burnout is very high because if you keep looking at the horror of the condition without artistry, without that shield, uh, you go up in flames. You need a deflection. This is something that art has all, always done. If I imagine growing up somewhere without this kind of mythic education I'm implying we need, I would imagine that just getting in touch with one's personal trouble, you know, unions would call it the wound, uh, would feel like a move towards truth. You know, it's not this anesthetized, disnified, mollified world. But the problem is myth demands something else from you. It says, you know what? Stirring your pen in your wound may be useful to you, buddy, but it doesn't make beauty which is high currency in the myth world, it doesn't make art and it's not really a gift. Just just stirring the yeah. wound, just not being aware of it, but yeah. but not dwelling in it, not well, living in it. Is that what you're in saying? It. You can deepen in it. Dwelling and deepen don't feel like the same thing. Uh, the night wages is an attempt to deepen into my particular predicament. It's to deepen into a certain incompleteness in my life that I have to recognize is part of my part of my story and I have no idea if it'll ever change I was earlier on using the image of Nostos well you know I didn't make it back to Ithaca I'm still out there at sea on my little raft (laughs) I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw and he's the author of The Night Wages and if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, drmartinshaw.com, D-R, the abbreviation, drmartinshaw.com. Or you can go to the other website, systemistica.com, C-I-S-T-A-M-Y-S-T-I-C-A, systemistica.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw, and he's the author of The Night Wages. And we're talking about myths and how they work in our lives and how they can really change us and deepen us and move us and inform us and claim us. I want to use the word claim us. We can be claimed by a myth, I think. I think it can actually come out and grab us. I think we all have had something. We've heard something or seen something, and it just like reaches out and grabs us. And what I hear about your work is that you encourage us to stay there. Don't turn away too fast. No, you know, myths get hurt feelings, you know. Ah. <laughs> they get hurt feelings. They don't want to see us flirting with a dozen of them. Uh, they don't know if we're serious or not. You know, uh, only only a few hundred years back, a new story turning up in your settlement or village is big news. So the story needs a libation. If, as we have discussed, it's a form of nutrition, you've got to pay for the meal. One <laughs> of the ways of paying for the meal is the telling of the story, uh, exploring the story, doing, doing something with it. Um, so stories do have their purchase on us. Right. And also, of course, there are stories that, that are deeply unpleasant and frightening and have us in a form of paralysis as well. Personal stories. You know, I've worked, for example, with, uh, with some of my colleagues with, you know, uh, men coming back, usually men coming back from active service in uh, Afghanistan or if you go back even to Vietnam, guys that have just never told their story. And a very effective thing to do is to subsume their stories within a wider, you know, it could be the Odyssey, the story of someone that just can't seem to seemingly can't get home, and then bearing witness to their own stories at some point within the wider process. So you sit down together, and whether it takes five hours or 10 hours or 15 hours, every person gets a chance to get up and tell those stories. That's very vocational work. It is absolutely not something that I invented or came up with, uh, but I've been around it, and I know it's substantial. And you're not talking about therapy. You're not talking about the idea of, okay, they tell their story, and then you start to give them advice or things. It, no, it's, no, it, there's, there's, absolute, a, there's no advice. It's a witnessing. Yeah. And it, so yeah. talk about the yeah. power of being a witness mm. to such a story. Well, you've hit on something important, which is actually great storytelling derives predominantly from your capacity to listen, much less so, actually, than your capacity to speak about it. Uh, and so, yeah, when, when, uh, when you bear witness to someone's story in that fashion, um, it's back to the mythic thing that I said earlier on, if you don't speak it, it ain't true. So you could have gone through hell in a handbag and until you find some way to articulate, it doesn't have to be theatrical, doesn't have to be dramatic, a million people don't need to know about it, but in some way, get it on your breath, <sighs> blow it out of yourself. You, you spoke earlier about being local, 
you quoted Wendell Berry, and you mm-hmm. said, you know, a big, big problem doesn't need a big answer. And so you are bringing us back to that place that we live, that we actually are, where we're planted. Reminded me of just like, okay, I don't live in a big forested area. I live more in a metropolitan area. But outside of my apartment is a tree. And so I think through through your work and what I'm I'm seeing is I'm starting to develop a new relationship with that tree. It's right there now in the seasons it loses its leaves in the winter and it then it foliage is out in the summer and uh I'm starting to just love that tree. And that's kind of what you're talking about in that there's all these big problems but we have to act with what is close to us. Yeah. It's the difference between being of a place and from a place. And let me talk about the difference. Uh, I have, you know, plenty of relatives going back a few generations in my family that are from a particular region of the West Country of England, Devon. Now, you could say they are from that place. But on the other hand, uh, there's a pal of mine, a guy called Satish Kumar, who is from a very different landscape that settled in Devon, you know, uh, 30, 40 years ago and has been utterly claimed by it, especially Dartmoor. Now, here's the rub. Satish is clearly of Dartmoor now. He has paid it loving, kind, diligent attention, and the land has responded in kind. Uh, wherever the conversation around myth is going, it is going to have to include stories of migration as well as stories of what we think of as the local because so many people are on the move. Uh, I've just written the catalogue for uh, the Chinese dissident artist Ai Weiwei, uh, specifically looking at the role between myth and enforced migrations that are going on all over the world at the moment. We are all in, a lot of us are are in tremendous movement, whether we like it or not. And it's a world in great disruption then, right now. Yeah. I work a lot uh, in America. And the thing about, for me, coming to America is that when I'm often in front of an audience, a large section of that audience, their great, 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 great grandmothers and fathers sailed out mm-hmm. of Plymouth. They sailed out of Galway. They sailed out of Fishguard. And so here we are looking at each other many, many generations later. I'm someone that stayed. My family stayed. You left. But if you look at the pigment, it's awfully similar. You look at the temperament, it's similar. But from a mythic perspective, When you sail west in the Celtic tradition, you're going for two reasons. You're going either to discover the other world or you're going to die. So when I'm in America, people may not find this interesting, but it's interesting to me. Uh, I'm aware of two things. One is I'm perpetually in the other world until I return to where I come from. Everything is the other world other than this tiny section of Devon that I live in, which is the navel of the universe. 
<laughs> but and then I I think though there's something really good about that kind of travel to change your longitude and change your latitude yeah. once in a while, of course. and it gives you it kind of wakes you up, wouldn't you say? There's a waking up. Oh yes, yes. I was talking to Charles Eisenstein last week. We were teaching together, uh, and we were both simultaneously longing for home. And also aware that if you're home too much, uh, a certain sedentariness can come in and uh, you need to change a gear. Um, I think that's going to change over the next 50 years for a lot of us, you know, how we travel. I'm somewhat of a hypocrite in that regard at the moment. I still get on planes, but it's not a good idea. More of my friends actually are rather elegantly starting to sail. So they will, you know, someone will say, I'm coming to, I'm coming to Britain, but you've got to give me two weeks. I think that's maybe a, a way to go. Well, there is something about slow travel that you get to notice things. I mean, we're speeding along over the earth on a plane, whether than driving or better still walking. I did an interview with a young man who walked from Pittsburgh to Half Moon Bay in California. Uh, took walked the whole way step by step by step without with just a backpack and only lived with the grace of people inviting him into their homes or 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 sacking out on their on their field somewhere and uh there's something about that that we get to meet others in a way that we just can't when we're just traveling so fast my suspicion is that stories are now migrating rather like human beings do. And uh, I wrote recently a little book that you can get from the Sister Mystica website you mentioned called The Five Fathoms. And really in that story, and it is a story that I wrote, you can feel there is an Inuit story shouting to a, Wel a Welsh story as the world goes up in flames. And that's something that I'm noticing amongst indigenous cultures as well as Western cultures. We are all in crisis. Everybody's in crisis. We are all concerned about our youth. We all adore the kids that are to come. And whatever little part of the world you can curate that you can raise up, now is the moment. There is no more time. It's now. Martin, I just want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. I've been speaking with Dr. Martin Shaw. He's the author of The Night Wages and many, many other books. So if you want to know more about it, all the books and his work and his lectures and his all and his work also your the school of myth uh, that you do in the West Country of England. Uh, of Great Britain. So let's um, talk about those websites first. Dr. Martin Shaw, drmartinshaw.com, or go to systemistica.com, C-I-S-T-A-M-Y-S-T-I-C-A. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3683.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.